Lord Jesus, you, uh, you promised that when two or three came together, you would be there. And I'm not quite sure of what that means except to say that here we are and we are with you. And we believe these times when we come together, especially when we come together to do things that you've encouraged us to do, there's a special sense in which we enter into the dimension where you live as you enter into the dimension where we live. We thank you that you've been part and parcel of our lives all this last week, whether we've been aware of it or not. Your promise that you are always with us holds true. We thank you that you will be with us in the coming week and that whenever we read your word, you speak to us. So come, Lord, and speak to us in your word and through your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to know where I am, I'm in Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> if you've been keeping track of what I've been speaking about over the last year or so, you'll notice that we've been sticking in Luke, really. I've been choosing passages from Luke. Here's one. Uh, Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' life. Let me read the first 13 verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I don't know what you make of the Gospels, or indeed of any part of the Scriptures, but there's always a danger that we read the, the Gospels especially, and other parts of Scripture, as a kind of moral lesson, Aesop's fables, if you will. Well, you read the story and then you say, now, the lesson we can draw from this is, so we all do this next week and we'll all be better off for it. And there's value to that, but that's not what the Gospels were written for. They tell a story, and not merely a story so we won't forget it, but they're telling the story of God doing something. It's not just that they're telling us a story, we better write it down quickly, otherwise everyone will forget it. So it's just a memorial to it. The word of God, we're told, is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So the word of God has power. 
in and of itself, not just because of the words, they're not magic or anything like that, but there's some power here. And what we need to know is that the Gospels follow on from the Old Testament, and you needed me to tell you that, didn't you? Because you didn't know that before. Anyone can work that out, can't they? The Old Testament finishes and the New Testament begins with the Gospels. But that's not just an accident of compilation. There's a story going through. And this is where we've reached in the story. It's a fulfilment of God's story. Some people, I think, believe that with exasperation, God closed the Old Testament with Malachi and said, for goodness sake, I'm glad that's over with. We can get on with the real thing now. And we start all over again. If you think like that, that couldn't be more wrong. Because the very last chapter of the very last book of the Old Testament prophesies about the very first chapter of the very first book in the New. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. An image John and Mark and Matt will get more readily than the rest of us, perhaps. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb and for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's the very final words of the last book in the Old Testament, pointing directly into the New Testament. And you'll know that chapter 1 of Luke has the angel telling Zechariah about the son that Elizabeth will bear. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, here we go, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Picking up that very prophecy from Malachi. That was John the Baptist's ministry. He was the one who was to come. Well, if you were an attentive Jew and paid attention to what you'd hear, heard, you'd know that the one who came after John the Baptist would be the Lord. There will be no more prophets because before that great and dreadful day came, one like Elijah would come. Well, he's come. So the one who follows him must be the Lord. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable chaff. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes, but one is coming 
And then you have the record of the baptism, then you have the genealogy of Jesus, and then you have the passage that I read. This is the Lord coming in glory and power. No wonder they missed it, is it? Because what were they expecting? The Lord to come on this great and dreadful day. It would be a great and dreadful day. But as John has already warned them, it's not only a dreadful day for Gentiles, which is what they expected, because Gentiles were not God's people, but it would be a dreadful day for Jews too. John called the Jews to repentance as well as Gentiles. Jesus would tell Jews as well as Gentiles to repent. Because what kind of God is this? What kind of Lord? Well, Jesus comes as the Christ, the Messiah, who was not a divine person in Old Testament thinking. The anointed one would be one like King David. He would also, in Isaiah's terminology, be the suffering servant. They couldn't put those two together. We are about to. But they couldn't put those two things together because they were a nonsense. Messiahs don't die. Suffering people can't be messiahs. You can't have those two together. But Jesus in himself put those two together, bewilderingly and wonderfully. So when God says to him on his baptism, you are my son, he's not saying you are the second person of the Trinity. He's saying you're my son in the same sense that Adam was my son and Israel was my son. And now you are my son. And he picks up terminology from Psalm 2. Which is not about divine people, but about God calling someone human his son. He comes as the son of God. So then Luke tells us at great length, because of the genealogy, that Jesus really is the son of Adam. So what we see when we have the temptation, we see what kind of king is coming. This is the world's rightful Lord coming into his world. But what kind of king will he be? And we're still in danger in our day and age of thinking of God as being able to sort out with a flick of his hand all the problems of the earth and sort out all the wrongdoers and put everything to rights. Well, that is happening, but not in the way we anticipate. Don't you and I get frustrated when we see the tragedy and sorrow and suffering of people, for example, in the Somerset levels, Thames Valley, Severn Valley, and plenty of other places across the country? Don't you and I wonder when we look at Syria and think, Lord, how long? And you could list very many other places too. Our nearest neighbour suffering with almost a, a famine of the word of God. There are more occultists I read on that active in France than there are people spreading the gospel. There's a thought. Don't you get frustrated? If God is king, where is he? Well, what kind of king is he? Well, that's what matters. How will he do what he has to do? Well, looking back to the past is not encouraging. Adam was the son of God. And he was tested by Satan in a garden. You remember that? Not in the wilderness, in a garden. He was tested by Satan. And he succumbed to temptation and led all mankind into death. And with that, dark satanic powers were unleashed upon the world. 
and we've been suffering the consequences of his rashness ever since. Hazir 11.1 talks about God saying, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel, a nation by that time of probably something of two and a half million people, but called by the name of God's son. That nation was also tested in the wilderness. The wilderness of Sinai. And the nation succumbed to temptation, was disobedient and repeatedly unfaithful. For 40 years they grumbled about bread, dallied with idolatry and continually put God to the test. And here Jesus is called by God, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested by the devil where the similarity finishes. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel constantly disappointed God, Jesus will completely satisfy his father's expectations. He has come to liberate. But not to liberate a small nation from the oppression of a larger empire, which is what the Jews were hoping, but to liberate this nation and all the nations of the earth from a much deeper oppression. The oppression of the devil himself, the arch enemy. He will resist the devil and all his works and will succeed in keeping faith with God, beginning with a in a, a process that will end with a dramatic victory over Satan on the cross. Do you never wonder at the incongruity of this mixture of symbols here? Do you never wonder? Paul will say to the Colossians, he disarmed the principalities and at the moment he looked most weak and least like a king, he overcame the powers of the evil one and once and for all overcame death and triumphed forever. How will he accomplish his task? It will not be by the exertion of power or the love of power, but the power, as someone has said, of love. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In our former life we were in Adam. Nothing we could do about the way life is. Unable to break out of the cycle of sin and temptation and rebellion and death. But in the renewed life we are in Christ. And the life of the world to come has been passed down to us. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert, a traditional place of prophetic inspiration. And far from beginning with great blessing, he starts at the very lowest point. His whole life so far has been a proof that you do not need any of the advantages that this world can offer in order to make a success of life, success being defined by what God thinks it is, not what man thinks it is. He started at the very lowest point. He's had none of the advantages that you or I would consider to be minimal or even advantageous. And this is how his ministry begins. Having been set off on his ministry, this is the very first thing that happens. So far from beginning with great blessing, everything is going to be stripped away. Trust in God will be found in the secret private place. If Jesus cannot win here, he might as well pack his bags and go back. It is not about the cross before it's about 
this overcoming here. The one leads to the other. So the temptations from the enemy come when he is weak with hunger and most vulnerable to suggestions of comfort, ease and the alleviation of pain. Although each temptation begins if you are the son of God, it sounds like it's being questioned, so are you really? That's not apparently what it means. Rather, it's as if the devil is saying to him, since you are the son of God, what do you propose to do about? Like, if I were the son of God, this is what I would do. What would you do? So it's not to doubt his sonship, but to establish what kind of son he will be. There are three temptations, and John, in his letter, 1 John 2, verse 16, defines temptation as the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. These are not the only temptations Jesus will face. The writer to the Hebrews tells us he's been tempted in every way. Is that a relief? He's been tempted in every way, like you have, yet was without sin. But these clearly are significant errors of testing. What is his reaction to God's provision or God's lack of provision? For the last 40 days, he's had nothing to eat. I have not gone that long without food ever. I would be very hungry indeed. And hunger makes you short-circuit anything. He's here challenged to express his sonship by performing miracles that will satisfy his hunger. What will be his reaction to God's plan? Verses 4 to 8. I will give you all their authority and splendor if you worship me. I can short-circuit things. He's challenged here to express his sonship by asserting politically, political mastery over the earth, over the world. And we could say that that would be a very tempting temptation for many politicians and people who crave power. What? Power and authority over all this? If I just worship you? And what about the threat to throw himself down and see if God will catch him, as it were. He's here challenged to express his sonship by amazing people, by leaping down from the wing of the temple, unharmed as God catches him. But Jesus' response is firm and definite. He will be God's son, and he will be God's son in the way God wants him to be the son. No short circuits for him. He firmly rejects this expression of independence and prefers to submit to the will of his father. So let's look at each one. The first one in verses 3 and 4. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. He's been hungry for 40 days. That's starving, I guess. Very weak, even though he was a strong man. And nowhere, is the, the temptation is not about making bread. I hope you're clear on that. Because nowhere in Scripture does it forbid him from making bread, from stones or anything else. A little later on, of course, he will actually turn one little boy's lunch into food that will feed 5,000 plus people more than adequately. What he's being here tested to do is to be dissatisfied with God's provision. That's the temptation. 
The specific making of bread is what he needs at this moment to express that. But that's not the temptation itself. The temptation is to be dissatisfied with God's provision. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. One of the besetting sins of the Israelites through the wilderness would be their constant grumbling at God that he has not provided all the things that they had in Egypt. And the more they grumbled, the more wonderful the things in Egypt appeared to be. And God has to remind them that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's being invited to act independently from God, to do something his father has not instructed, and to use his power to satisfy selfish ends. When he feeds the 5,000, that's not a selfish thing, that is a demonstration that the kingdom is here, the feeding of the poor is a sign of the kingdom. Well, he follows his father's plan. Verse 6, I will give you all their authority and splendor if you worship me. He's been tested to seek something for himself without reference to God. This is to act independently from God, which is the essence of sin. I remember clearly being in a session where this guy was addressing pastors and church leaders and he said if any of you are doing anything that God hasn't told you to do, you better stop doing it quick. I can remember the sort of stunned reaction of everyone. He said, because if you're doing that, it means you can't be doing what God has told you to do. And I think every one of us had a vision of all the things we were doing that just were, we were doing. Because other people expected it or we expected it without knowing it was what God had called us to do. This is the task every church faces of putting expectations upon their church leader to do things that God hasn't told them to do. And in the end, you end up with a frustrated church leader because they're busy doing stuff that God hasn't told them to do and a frustrated people because the things that God has told them to do aren't being done. He's tempted to seek significance, power, prestige, recognition other than in God. Will he rely on God's promises? He's invited to put God to the test, verse 9. Throw yourself down, says the devil. He'll catch you, he's promised to. Psalm 91 says so. And he's tested to take a statement of God and demand that God prove himself by keeping it. That sounds faith-filled, but it's not. There's a subtle difference. This is not the same thing as taking God at his word. We act faithfully when we accept what God has said and act accordingly, putting our trust in him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Right. If you tell me that, then, then Lord, I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness first. And I'm going to hope that you keep your promise. That's living faithfully. But we're acting faithlessly when we demand God prove himself. If you are God, then you must do this or I won't believe in you. If you don't, dot, 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 then I won't, dot, dot, dot. Jacob at Bethel has a vision of God. Remember that ladder 
up and down. God is in this place. His first prayer, if you can call it that, is one of manipulation. If you will provide me with X, Y, and Z, then I will give you a tenth of all I've got. That's not prayer, that's manipulation. That's a pagan prayer. First time Jacob prays in the Bible, and it's nothing but paganism. It's a bargain with God. If you do this, and I will do that. That's not how we go with God. And this is what Jesus is being invited to do. So Jesus deals with them and the tempter very securely. And he draws his information. This is not just a quoting of texts as if they were magic. This is where we need to understand our our Bibles because the word of God is living and active but not so you can just drag a few verses and mix them together and then throw them out the other side and expect them to do wonderful things. He immediately goes back to the parallel passage in the life of Israel which comes, of course, recorded in Deuteronomy. So he's not just plucking verses out of the air. These are verses that speak into exactly the same situation that the Israelites themselves faced hundreds of years before. So he's soaked in the word of God. He believes in the word of God. This isn't a competition about who knows more of the scriptures than who, who else. But he quotes from that. Deuteronomy. This is a section of scripture that covers the wilderness wanderings. So when tempted to satisfy his own bodily needs, he chooses a text, a passage, that affirms that we are more than physical beings who have physical needs to supply. God perfectly well knows we cannot live on earth without food and water. Because he made us. He understands what we need. There are certain essential things that people need Housing would be another one. But we're also spiritual beings who need God more than we need anything else. You can have all the other things and not have God. And you have nothing. But if you have God and none of the other things, you have everything. Hopefully, in God's economy, the ideal is you have God and all these things. That was his original desire. But this has been brought to a break point. When tempted to seek power for himself, he uses a verse that expresses the truth that true significance is to be found in God alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now that sounds very selfish of God, but God full well knows because he made everything, so he understands how everything works, that we become like the object we worship. And it's not a question of whether we worship, we all worship. But we become like that which we worship. That's a very odd sentence, isn't it? I couldn't put it any better. What we worship will draw our attention. So God says, worship me, because we are made in the image of God. And to know that image in ourselves is to be truly human. Anything less is subhuman. Some people accuse Christians of being subhuman. Actually, we can say without any shadow of pride that we are the most complete humans in the earth. We're not yet fully complete, but we're getting there. Because to become a Christian is to become fully human, not to be less than human. So God says, worship me, You will become like me, which is my original intention, and then you will know true satisfaction, true significance, 
But where are we encouraged these days? Where are people encouraged to go and find themselves? Spend time on your own? Find yourself? Tony Campola says, so what happens if you look inside yourself and find in the end you're an onion? You keep taking the layers off and in the end there's nothing. What then? This self-examination doesn't actually lead you anywhere. But if we adore God, we become to see who we really are. He declares truth, but he doesn't argue it. He doesn't argue in temptation. Arguing with temptation, discussing temptation is a dangerous way of actually succumbing to it. He just speaks back to the tempter. He's learnt the lessons of past generations. It's not a battle of the intellect, it's a battle of the will. It's not about who knows more scripture, it's about faith in God. What kind of son will he be? How will he use the power that he's been given? And you and I have been given also the same spirit. We are born of the same spirit and filled with the same spirit. Therefore we have the authority of Jesus. But how will we use it? What kind of sons and daughters will we be? Temptation for power and authority for selfish use of God's provision is a very strong one indeed. And the church has not been exempt from succumbing to that temptation. Jesus here demonstrates the kind of kingdom he's bringing in is a kingdom of loving service. It's a kingdom of submission to the Father. It is a seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So as we consider this coming week, I was just very touched. I guess, I mean, without talking to John and Matt, I guess the farming community is a, is a close or a loose-knit connection of people who fully understand the pressures they are each under. And so I said, I guess a farmer's hearts go out to farmers in, in trouble. Well, certainly as that happened this week, I heard on the news of the fact that I think down in Sedgemoor, in, in Somerset, Farmers, I guess, or smallholders or other people with, with cattle fodder have been carting their stuff from one part of the country to another in order to give it away freely. Isn't that lovely? That's really lovely. It warms your heart, doesn't it? Oh, thank you for all the structured things and uh, organised things that are happening too to alleviate the pain and suffering of these people. But isn't it wonderful here that this stuff arising out of sheer generosity of heart out of love for one another not expectation of return but a generosity if it were me I'd want someone else to do it for me I'm going to do it for you with no sense of gain I hope I have enough for the winter too this is the kind of kingdom that God has come to bring in not the kingdom that lords it over other people but it comes in here and the devil has to go after he's finished his testing until an opportune time. It's not the end of the testing. The testing will come. And this will lead step by heavy step to the cross. But the cross is already a done deal. It was done here. Well, in fact, it was done before this. But it's done here now. It's a done deal. Because this is a king who's come to demonstrate a different kind of kingdom to the kingdom of the world. We are so used to the flawed, distorted exhibitions of kings 
and kingdoms, but we don't recognise the real one when he comes. So as you go into this week, as you go through the normal things you face this week, as you live among your normal community this week, some of whom will be suffering greatly, others full of joy and so forth. This is what we are called to do. To live out lives of loving submission to God. Fully satisfied with all God's provision. Oh, we can ask for more. Give us today our daily bread. Absolutely. No one has ever been told off for asking things in the Bible. No one is. God says, ask to me and I will give. So we can ask. But in the end, we are content with what God gives us. Thankful for what he gives us. Grateful. And since we live in his kingdom, generous with what he's given. As we submit to his lordship, soak ourselves in the word of God and are filled with the same spirit of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, your example is a stirring example for us. But first of all, we see you demonstrating in your own self the kind of kingdom and the kind of king God wants. Bringing to a head all the hopes and dreams of humanity, of Israel, in yourself. Drawing all those threads together and showing how the plans and purposes of God from the ages find their crux in you. It will always be a mystery to us this salvation that you have brought for us. But we are eternally grateful for you. And as shortly we celebrate that reality, we ask that we shall know the presence of God here among us. For Jesus' sake.